You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Hey guys, ready or not, 2024 is here, and we here at Breaking Points are already thinking of ways we can up our game for this critical election. We rely on our premium subs to expand coverage, upgrade the studio, add staff, give you guys the best independent coverage that is possible. If you like what we're all about, it just means the absolute world to have your support. But enough with that, let's get to the show. Happy Thursday. We have an amazing show for everybody today. What do we have, Crystal? Indeed, we do. Lots of drama to get to this morning. Um, first of all, developments with regard to the debt ceiling. We will tell you what is likely to happen there as best as we can possibly figure as we are coming down to the wire. We also have some big developments with regard to Jeffrey Epstein and uh, one of the banks that was happy to have his business for years and years after he'd already been convicted of uh, being a, a sex criminal. So we will talk about that as well. And also Noam Chomsky caught in Noam! My man, no. I, I don't even know what to the, say about that. That book might have to go, Crystal. Yeah. I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure we can keep that behind the it's set not, now. Not a good look, let's just yeah. say that. Um, also, some really dire numbers with regards to the housing market and some overall economic news. And actually, some news about just how Americans are doing, like at the core of their being, that we need to talk through as well. Um, whole Meghan and Harry situation in Manhattan that I just, it's like literally the South Park episode. I, I I've been obsessed. The moment it came out, I said, this is fake. I'm calling them the Duke and Duchess of Smollett. I'll make you make, I'll, you, you can make up your mind for yourself whether you think they're lying or not. I, we, I don't think my my uh, view is all that. I think it's pretty clear what happened yeah. at this point. Um, so we'll give you all those details. Also, there are some rumors about what Fox News is going to do now that they have pushed Tucker Carlson out, how they're going to reconfigure their primetime lineup. Also excited to have a uh, political reporter in the show that we haven't had before, Shelby Talcott. She is tracking closely Ron DeSantis versus yes. Donald Trump. So we want to get her report from the campaign trail as well. Old friend of mine. She actually took my job. White House correspondent. Oh, that's the right. Daily Caller before me. And uh, now she works over at Semaphore. She's doing a very good ben job. Ben Smith's outlet. The GOP primary. That's right. And uh, by all accounts, I mean, she's allowed to do what she needs to. And she's she's doing a really good job of just like beat to beat about 
DeSantis and Trump and all that. And so I'm excited to talk to her a little bit about that. So uh, before we get to that, though, we just want to say thank you to everybody who watched the RFK interview. I know that so many of you enjoyed it. I guess my only regret about it is that we didn't have enough time uh, with the man. He unfortunately had to go. But we talked to him about it afterwards, Crystal, and uh, he wants to come back. And uh, we've even discussed doing a town hall event or something of some kind that yeah. we can try and organize. So by all accounts, you know, uh, we're happy with how that went. And, and we want to make sure that we continue to do more of these. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Um, yes, really enjoyed the exchange with him. Um, I think we we try to cover as much ground as we could in the time that he had available. Obviously, he's extraordinarily busy here in D.C. So, um, you know, grateful to him for his time. Grateful to you guys for uh, watching, engaging with it. And also those of you who signed up as premium subs, super, super appreciate yeah, that as we really. are getting very close to having the new set to reveal. Yeah, we really do appreciate uh, all of you. And, you know, we're going to have more of these interviews. Uh, we're going to in the works right now, scheduling Marianne to come. We're going to grill her as well. And I think that's something we're committed to. We're going to grill every single one of them uh, whenever they have here. Yeah. And I do think in the future we're going to push for a little bit more time though, in terms of uh, the schedule. Because I'm just <laughs> like, you know, I really don't like whenever people uh, have to go and all of that. But we'll get to that. It's, Listen, it's all good. These are busy folks. Yes. So totally understand. And um, yeah. like I said, I think we got a, a, a lot of ground covered with him in the time that we had available. Absolutely. So super grateful for him for uh, taking the time. And thanks for everybody who signed up. And if you want to continue to support our ability to do that, town hall events, new sets, all of that, it's very expensive. So we appreciate you breakingpoints.com to become a premium subscriber today. All right, let's get to the very latest with regard to the debt ceiling. Um, just as backdrop here again, guys, we have this really weird and incredibly stupid system where Congress votes to spend money and then weirdly they have this separate vote about whether or not they're actually going to borrow enough to pay those bills mm -hmm. um, down the line. Republicans in particular have decided to use this as a point of leverage to try to get through things that they otherwise could not get passed through the Congress. And so now we are coming to a head here. Um, by some accounts, June 1st is kind of the drop dead date. We are going to go through in a moment. If we do breach the debt ceiling, what is the potential fallout? I mean, the, the ta big takeaway is nobody really knows, but it looks like it would be really, really bad. And obviously it is now May 18th. So we are inching very close to that deadline. Joe Biden's original consistent stance had been not going to negotiate. Right. Clean debt ceiling. That's all I, I'll accept. Not going to negotiate with the hostage takers. Well, now he has gone back on what was previously a very clear position. He is, in fact, negotiating with the hostage takers, although he's trying to parse and pretend like he's not. Here is how he is framing things and what he is saying. We're going to come together because there's no alternative to do the right thing for the country. We have to move on. And uh, to be clear, this negotiation is about the outlines of what the budget will look like, not about whether or not we're going to, in fact, pay our debts. The leaders have all agreed we will not default. Every leader has said that. Well, so, yeah. all have agreed we will not default. I don't, well, we'll see. I'm I don't not know sure what I that believe means. that, to be honest yeah, with you. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And then you can see how he's trying to parse here. He's trying to say, oh, we're not really negotiating on the debt ceiling. We're talking about the, the budget. This is all just word games. They are negotiating on the debt ceiling, something that, you know, I'll talk a little bit more about in a moment, I think is a dramatic mistake. Because what does this mean? Even putting aside whether you think the GOP demands are good or bad or indifferent or whatever, the minute you give in to this people, guess what? 
every time this vote comes up, the whole global economy is going to be held hostage again by, you know, whoever wants to gain an edge and get something through that they could not get through the legislative process. Yeah, I mean, I think people need, this is also why, though, I will say, Chris, I was actually very frustrated several months ago because I'm like, listen, you're going to negotiate. There's no question about it. Like, there is no getting around this. But like, there is getting around it. Like, there are other options. There are multiple other workarounds. There is a 14th Amendment workaround where the Constitution says, like, the debt shall not be questioned. You could pursue that. You could mint the coin. There's another alternative where you can issue premium bonds. So there are other workarounds. Otherwise, God, we're just going to go back to this same dynamic year after year after year every time there's a Democratic president and Republicans have one or the other House of Congress. I'll rephrase. I meant within the framework that the Biden administration of Joe Biden. has uh, yes. created. Sure. I will say, okay, look on the 14th Amendment. So I've done a decent amount of research now, and I'm not even saying that these aren't feasible. Same with Mint the Coin. A lot of it actually does come down to whether the market would accept it. So I guess we could talk a little bit about that um, in yeah. terms of what a breach would look. But you could technically mint the coin. And even if the Federal Reserve were to accept um, the coin, and we let that actually is not a given. There's actually no guarantee that the markets would look at that as a genuine uh, debt ceiling lift. So part of the problem is, you know, so much of our feelings around debt are feelings and they are backed not necessarily by the technical raising of the debt ceiling, but by everybody just kind of walking around and just being like, yeah, the full faith and credit of the United States. It's, it's good. We're cool with it. When that starts to come into question, even with the 14th Amendment, the debt ceiling, the premium bonds, as you said, that uncertainty, you're still looking, likely looking at a crash. I mean, it's just one of those where it's a very complicated situation. So I also don't want to take uh, responsibility away from the Republicans because I think we should all you know, be honest about what they are asking for. And they have decided that they want to cut spending and return spending levels to six months ago. When you put it that way, okay, it sounds reasonable. But one of the ways that they want to cut spending almost entirely is they don't want to touch the uh, military budget at all. They don't want to touch any DOD spending or Ukraine spending. They don't want to touch entitlement programs. Well, you just took off the two vast portions of the entire federal expenditure. So what is left? Well, what's left are effectively, um, you know, you have food stamp programs. Um, they've talked about welfare. They've talked about rescinding some of the IRS money. I mean, personally have a problem with some of that, uh, but they do have uh, want to rescind some of the money um, taken within the Inflation Reduction Act, some of which has already been spent, some future tax credits. And my other problem with it is they also don't want to raise any taxes. There right. are actually 10 different tax loopholes that have uh, that could easily be closed. We've talked about each one of them on the show. Ad nauseum, the private equity loophole, the carried interest loophole, step-up basis loophole. Uh, there are several other corporate loopholes. None of these would ever touch anybody who is watching, including people at this desk. It has nothing to do with small business or middle class. This is all corporate or extremely high net worth individuals, which could raise billions of dollars, and they've taken that off the table. So I, I want it to be very, I want to lay out exactly what the conversation yes. here. I mean, in a sense, like I said, I don't really care what their demands mm. are because I think the whole thing is economic terrorism. And so even if what they were saying was totally reasonable, on a, as a matter of principle, I don't think you should negotiate. But the details matter for, for another reason, which is that it really shows how disingenuous they are about actually caring about the debt. First of all, there is no sign in the markets that we have any sort of looming debt issue. Up until very recently when the Fed started hiking rates, interest rates have been incredibly low. The market has been very stable in terms of treasury bonds. Like there's no indication out there that we have this looming debt crisis we have to deal with. That's number one. Number two, if you were genuinely concerned about the debt, guess what you would put on the table? The freaking Trump tax cuts 
for the top 1%, you could keep whatever little piddling, you know, pennies they gave to like the middle class and the working class. Fine, keep that in there. Roll back the ones that dramatically benefited corporate America that they used to engage in all their stock buybacks. That added massively to our debt. That put a gigantic hole in our budget. Like if you actually cared about these things, that would be on the table. And of course, they're not interested in that. They're not interested in a tax conversation whatsoever because this is an ideological project. And it's a specifically an ideological project to appease one part of the Republican caucus that, you know, extracted their pound of flesh from Kevin McCarthy in order to for him to get his speakership. Let's go ahead and put this next piece from Axios up on the screen that has some of these details. So they're talking about how McCarthy called Biden's bluff, as uh, you were pointing out, soccer, mm -hmm. Biden being a, you know, weak need institutionalist. Uh, unfortunately, the writing was kind of on the wall that ultimately he would cave and he would negotiate. That's exactly what is happening now. Uh, they say efforts to peel off vulnerable House Republicans failed. None openly opposed McCarthy's strategy of tying spending cuts to a debt ceiling hike. Uh, House Rules Committee Chair Tom Cole told Axios they're negotiating now and they weren't doing it before. So again, he caved. Um, now, the cope here from the Biden side, and this is the politics that, that come into this, they say, if Biden conceded to direct one-on-one -on -one negotiations, McCarthy is prepared to give ground as well. He's open to a deal that lifts the debt ceiling until 2025 beyond the next election. And there it is. I mean, that's the real um, Trump card that the Republicans have is they can hold out to him like, we'll make these economic problems for you go away. All you have to do is like throw poor people under the bus, basically, and we'll make this go away until after the next election so that we don't have some sort of global financial catastrophe that is going to hurt you in your reelect bid. And so that's what this comes down right. to. Right, and he actually spoke a little bit on CNBC yesterday. Let's take a listen. And first of all, there is not going to be a tax discussion in this debt ceiling. The president admitted that yesterday at the beginning. Let's curve what we are spending less than we spent last year. Let's go back five months. Let's put in things that make us grow, right? Permitting reform. Cut the red tape. If you like renewable energy, be able to get the permit to do it. Build the roads. But also the other energy we talked about. Let's help people get jobs again. Let's be less dependent upon China. I think that's reasonable and sensible, but I didn't think it was reasonable that I had to wait 104 days until right. they finally admit they'd come Speaker. into the room and negotiate. I actually do agree with him on permitting reform, uh, but on the rest of it, I, I, probably that's always the issue, which is it sounds reasonable, and then you start looking at what's actually being cut. That's why I wanted to lay it out for people. I, you know, listen, if you do care about the debt, and there are reasons that you you know maybe should or maybe shouldn't, and there it's a multifaceted conversation, but if you would, then some there are many other things that should be on the table. As he said, he doesn't want to have a tax conversation. And you know, I, most Republicans are not against raising taxes on, the corp, on corporations or on closing tax loopholes for the financial industry. Most regular like, Republican voters. I'm talking about actual yeah, Republican, Republican voters. Republican elite like, electeds. There's a reams of polling on this. Like Republicans don't want to touch entitlements and they don't have any problem with raising taxes on corporations and specifically on wealthy tax loopholes that only benefit financial billionaires. There are many, I mean, this is almost where it's like, just turn it into a culture war thing and be like, George Soros and all these other people, let's tax them. I'd be like, okay, let's go. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like, That's actually yeah, a great these idea. These ESG uh, terrorists, which kind of true, uh, should pay taxes. Okay, uh, you know, let's let's go. There's a lot of different ways. So I, this is always why I just find the conversation very difficult. And you know, look in terms of the debt ceiling and all of that. As you said, I mean, just I think. I come back to this. I think hardcore Republicans are gonna be with them no matter what. They like a fighter, they like somebody who's going to fight. The question remains, 
Are people real, like when they hear and understand, let's say your 401k drops by 25% and they're like, wait, we're doing this for, uh, for work per, for work reform, work requirements in the food stamp program, regardless of how you feel or not about that. Like, do you feel enough about that to have your retirement portfolio go down by 25 to threaten to crash or, the entire global economy or over it? you know this is another one so let's say that last time 2011 we didn't even go over the debt ceiling we still had our debt downgraded that had significant ramifications for pension funds and for t-bills and a lot of it was erased the problems for that by very very low interest rates in the zero interest rate economy well we don't live in that environment anymore so this actually yeah. could only further uh, pr propel us into a Session. Now, cynically, though, I mean, this is kind of exactly what you want if you are a Republican. Like, if you are politically and cynically, at the end of the day, Crystal, I do believe that in the short term, while it would not be good for the Republican Party and they may suffer some costs overall, that in the net, having a worse off economy is going to be worse off for Joe Biden vis -a -vis, Which uh, is whenever he becomes president. A, an absolutely psychopathic right. way for them to look at this. I'm like, just, I'm just, I, I'm yeah, not, yeah, I, yeah, I agree with yeah, you. Yeah, I'm not, yeah, that's not yeah. aimed at you. That's right. aimed at them. I mean, right. that is psychopathic for them to look at it that way. But I think you're right. That mm -hmm. is the gamble that they're taking because they're, they're playing with people's lives here. Um, and the, so in terms of the mechanics of how this is going to work, there's been a lot of happy talk in DC this week about, oh, they're going to come to a deal. Maybe, maybe, but um, there's still a long way to go before that actually comes together because you have um, Democrats who are pissed off, progressives who are pissed off. Put this up on the screen from Jeff Stein. You've got a number of Senate Democrats in particular, including Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, and others who just sent a letter urging Biden to prep that 14th Amendment solution, again, the 14th Amendment, saying that the validity of the public debt of the United States shall not be questioned. Because keep in mind here, what is basically happening is Congress is sending the president two conflicting sets of instructions. One set of instructions says, spend this money. And the other says, don't do what you need to do to be able to spend this money. So the basic constitutional argument here is you've got the 14th Amendment, which says the debt shall not be questioned. Take it to the courts and let the Supreme Court make the call as to whether they want to be the ones that crash the economy. And even though the court, you know, very partisan institution, but it's not clear that you would have uh, all of the conservatives like committed to the potential chaos that could be unleashed, unleashed by taking that perspective. So progressives are pissed. You're increasingly getting strong words from them about their upset um, about what the White House is putting on the table, the work requirements, the fact that Biden's been open to work requirements on any of this stuff, the fact that he caved and is negotiating. You're getting an increasing upset there. So that's the Democratic side. In some ways, though, even more seriously, on the Republican side, there were some pretty stringent demands made from the furthest right part of the caucus. And it's not at all clear that whatever deal Biden and McCarthy would make would be acceptable to the Republican, yes. entirety of the Republican caucus. So there's still, even though there was a lot of happy talk in Washington this week about, oh, we think they're getting close and we think there may be a deal, I'm still skeptical that that is really going to ultimately come together because it's not just up. If it was just Joe Biden and, jo and uh, Kevin McCarthy, I almost said John Boehner, my God, um, <laughs> PTSD. If it was just Joe Biden and Kevin McCarthy, yes, I think they could probably come up with something that both of them would be comfortable with because they're both basically institutionalists. They're both, both basically, quote unquote, moderates. But when you add in all these other factors, it makes it a lot more complicated to actually get to the finish line here. So... I think 
you know, all of the the sort of solutions, the workarounds, all of those things are in a sense still on the table, even as I have little confidence that Joe Biden really has the spine to pursue any of them. Yeah, my thing is, I am increasingly believe that we are going to default, at least in some name only, and that mm. only after that will we see some sort of deal. That's part of what I was talking about. So I think June 1, the likelihood of having a deal between McCarthy and Biden, which is acceptable to Democrats in the Senate and Republicans in the House just seems like zero. And remember this also, McCarthy has what, 20 something votes or whatever to play with? Well, it's not like they have all that many votes on the Democratic side to actually get this through. There are many Republicans who may not even vote to advance the debt ceiling deal out of Congress, out of the Senate for right. cloture. So you have to put that you know, in the Senate and think about where that comes from. But then you have the House of Representatives. Then there's a flippening where there's also a clean debt ceiling, which is on the floor yeah. for the um, House of Representatives. And they, the Democrats, only need five Republicans to sign on for them. Yes. So I actually think there could be a likelihood that we get to June 1 and people are like, the markets crash. That's the only time, let's be honest, you know, until Wall Street gets mad, that's not- They don't care. They don't care. So the markets crash, the, the hedge fund managers and everybody in the banks all blow up the phones. And it's certainly possible, given the discharge petition and more, that they were able to get a clean debt ceiling through because five moderate-ish Republicans are like, you know what, I don't wanna deal with this. Let's kick it down the road for a month or something like that. Yeah. Then it would go to the Senate. But then there's no guarantee that the Senate, uh, the Republicans that's would vote right. for that. So I'm looking at this on both sides and I just see tremendous amounts of uncertainty. Is it possible? I don't know. But I don't think that the impetus for forcing negotiating power right now is there enough. There has to be a crash of some kind for people to get serious. I, I don't say this, with, but, you know, I don't want there to be a no, crash, I but there, I, 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 I really don't believe that they will genuinely do anything, both sides, right? There's no way that Elizabeth Warren and John Fetterman and all these people are gonna work, vote for work requirements unless uh, there's a massive crash. There's also no way that a lot of these uh, spending people who are like, I wanna cut the Department of Education, I'm not gonna vote for anything until that goes through. There's no way they're gonna vote until, unless we have yeah. a large crash either. I so, mean, there's there's a few Republicans in the yeah. House who are like, I'm not voting for a debt ceiling increase yeah, at all. Go. Right, exactly. So it just, just to show you like mm -hmm. the polarity of the views here, so just to type this part of the conversation before we get to, all right, what could happen theoretically if we do bre breach the debt ceiling, especially for some kind of extended period of time. The, the basic paths that are available right now is they are able to strike some kind of a deal that is acceptable to enough Republicans and enough Democrats in the House and the Senate in order for it to actually right. get through. Right. Um, that is one potential outcome, and I think we've laid out how dicey a, a prospect that is. There's what you were referring to, Sagar, this idea of a discharge petition, which is there is a sort of arcane legislative procedure that if you have a majority of members of the House sign on to it, you can bring something onto the floor without permission from House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Mm -hmm. So that's where you're talking about. If you could get five Republicans to join with all the Democrats on a clean debt ceiling increase through a discharge petition, that is another potential alternative as you're laying out. In some ways, the bigger barrier there is the Senate because you have to get 60 votes in the Senate still for that thing to go through. So that's the discharge petition. 
And then you have this raft of workarounds. I think the 14th Amendment one is the one that seems to be considered most um, uh, most sort of seriously within the White House, even though they have expressed to Jeff Stein and others that they're very skeptical of, um, of that as well, and they're nervous about what it would mean. There are other workarounds that are sort of gimmicky, like the mint the coin and other um, directions they could go there. So we'll put that all in the basket of different workarounds. And at this point, you know, I can make a case against each one of those very clearly, and it's hard for me to make an affirmative case for any one of them because they all have major risk challenges and political, um, you know, uncertainties. So yeah. that's kind of where we stand with things. No, I think you're right. I think we should just tell people, like, what's going to happen, what's possible. Yeah. Yeah. Those are all the scenarios. Okay, so let's talk about if they are unable to come to a deal and uh, the Biden administration doesn't employ one of these workarounds and we do, in fact, breach the debt ceiling, what is this going to look like? And the truth of the matter is nobody really knows, because even though we technically breached it before, you know, there was a resolution quickly enough that we didn't get to some of the most dire scenarios, although even in that scenario, this is back in 2011, we lost trillions of dollars in household mm -hmm. wealth just from that brief breach of the debt ceiling. So it shows you there could be tremendous consequences here. Go ahead and put this up on the screen from the Washington Post. Um, the headline here is seven doomsday scenarios. If the U.S. crashes through the debt ceiling, this was written up by Jeff Stein. Um, just at the top, you know, they've got quotes from a few economists saying uh, Mark Zandi, a chief economist at Moody's, says it would be a lethal combination. You can see how this thing could really metastasize and take down the entire financial system, which would ultimately take out the economy. I've seen many other economists say this could be way worse than the 2008 financial cra crash if allowed to fester for a sufficient period of time. So going through the seven scenarios here, I mean, number one, the first thing that would probably happen is stocks would crash. Um, and you have estimates uh, that stock prices could fall by roughly one-fifth. That's from Moody's Analytics. Um, you would have stocks plummeting on the expectation of a wider economic downturn. Interest rates would rise. Investors would pull funds out of the market to preserve their access to short-term cash. And, um, you know, that piece, I think, is pretty clear that you would have a, a rather instantaneous stock crash. And, you know, we did see Sagar previously in the when there was the coronavirus mm -hmm. crash, which was so brief that people like apparently forgot that it even happened. And by people, I mean, like elites who weren't paying that close of attention because it galvanized forces in Washington to actually act. So it is possible if you had stocks fall off a cliff, then maybe people will get their act together at that point and get something done. Yeah, I mean, looking at all of these, stocks crashing is obviously going to force. That couldn't be everything. The sudden recession, federal workers in limbo, I don't think, I'm not saying they don't matter, but I am saying I don't think a lot of people are going to care well, as I don't, much. I don't want to just yeah. write that one off because you are talking about U.S. military personnel. You're talking about air traffic controllers. Right. You're talking about food safety inspectors. Federal government is the largest employer in the whole country. True. So this is, that's not a nothing to wave off. And of course, when you have the largest employer in the whole country, basically like, you know, not paying their, their workers, then that obviously feeds into much broader economic issues with yeah. regard to the instant recession. The one that really hit me was the social security. So it was said that it's possible that we could reach a point where 60 million people who get monthly social security payments would not be getting some of their payments in addition to federal reimbursement for Medicare. I was like, that is one which actually would uh, really change things. Now, some Republicans have said that the government actually can continue to make these payments, but some budget experts are skeptical of the Treasury Department 
will have the ability. The other thing is cynically, if the Republicans are like, no, you can, and the Treasury Department's are like, no, we can't. It's like, well, who has the authority to pay? The Treasury Department, right? right? So they may do it just to try and force a hand of somebody. Let's all be honest. Like nobody really knows how to, wh- how and what to do because what happens is the Treasury Department will still have incoming revenues. All of us will continue to pay taxes, business owners. You know, we have to pay on a quarterly basis or whatever. So we'll pay our quarterly tax estimate. Well, they can use that money coming in because it's non-congressionally appropriated. So then they, though, have to go and decide what to spend it on. But that itself comes to a constitutional question of, like, you shouldn't be making decisions about what to spend and what not. So it's, yeah, it it is complicated. Right. And also, you know, think about this choice that they would be making. Are you going to pay the uh, debt holders? Mm -hmm over like the seniors who need Which is their what Wall Street Social wants. Security. Of course yeah. that's what Wall Street yeah. wants, a hundred percent. Um and you know to, to make the, the other side of this, there are Republicans who say, oh we've gone through, we prioritize how we'd make the payments. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it wouldn't be as dire as what you're laying out. But again, this is all completely uncharted territory. And so there's a lot of skepticism that however many it's like billions of payments have to go on from the federal government that do you really trust the, the federal government to be able to accurately like prioritize those in a way that everybody's gonna find acceptable, very likely they would privilege Wall Street over like veterans, seniors, et cetera. So, um, so yeah, I think that's a really important one. And this could be a global catastrophe. Um, why? Because more than half of the world's foreign currency reserves are held in US dollars. Treasury bonds are used as collateral uh, routinely because they're considered to be like the safest possible financial instrument. Sometimes they're considered like safer than cash. This backstops uh, as collateral transactions, major corporate transactions all around the globe. And that's why, again, it's so hard to predict, okay, when that stops being so certain and becomes instantly this risky asset, what does that do? Mm-hmm. What does it mean in terms of our status as still being the world's reserve currency? You already have countries that are trying to move in another direction from that. So huge and very frightening question marks about what that would all look like. And I always remember, you know, what happened in the UK when you had that mini budget disastrously released by Liz Truss, and it had all of these follow-on catastrophic instant economic impacts that nobody really saw coming because the global financial system is so intertwined and so complex that even the most intelligent and well-versed economists can't lay out what all of the follow-on effects are. So that's what makes this so frightening. You, of course, would have the dollar drop. Um, You would have U.S. borrowing costs soar, which is the opposite of what you want if you're worried about the debt. That means the debt becomes even more expensive and we're even in a deeper hole. So that's why this is not something to to play around with. You know, this is not a game and it's not something to be casual about. There are potentially very dire and very serious consequences here and they're playing with fire. Let's go put the next one on there because it's important actually, which is they say the consequences from Bloomberg of the debt ceiling are already here. And what they say is that this is even J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon. The consequences could be catastrophic. Um, one person that they quote, the former chief of staff at the Treasury Department, said, people get the joke that's going on in Washington. It's the strongest economy in the world, the most powerful nation. If it's not going to pay its debts when due, you've got to be kidding. And then what they point to is that this could cause global financial panic, as you said, Crystal. And that's why when you're messing with something which seems so ironclad in the global financial system, you really just have no idea what's going to happen. They point to the $50 trillion capital markets, debt and equity. Any hiccups in repo markets that could take those markets off course have hundreds of billions of dollars in implications, even a couple of percent 
you know, both ways. And the overnight lending through the banks and financial markets as primary collateral, he says there could be a huge contraction of credit and capital markets, liquidity that greases the skids of all of those markets, as well as a huge liquidity call. What's more, corporations with AAA ratings cannot be rated more safe than the country that they are hosted in, meaning that corporations themselves could face mandatory downgrades and higher borrowing costs. That's what I referenced um, earlier in our show whenever we had a debt a downgrade um, in the way that we were, you know, all of these things have automatic kick-ins um, for pensions and for higher borrowing costs. And if we have higher borrowing costs across not only as a government, but for our individual corporations, that bleeds into what they're able to do, what they're able to borrow money for. So yeah, it's it's just a real mess um, over, all around. I think that's the only way you could possibly sum it up. And yeah. let me just say again, look, I think Biden has made a catastrophic error here by um, agreeing to negotiate um, because I think the consequences of this are so dire. And I do want to be clear on like the 14th Amendment workaround or whatever. No one is saying that would be painless. Mm-hmm. It would be, you know, there would be economic consequences to that as well because, Sagar, what you're pointing to, the uncertainty of how this would work out within the legal system yeah, exactly. and was this, you know, debt really going to be honored in the way that our other debt, that is all really true. But we cannot keep having these hostage situations year after year after year. We have got to find a way to take this thing off the table because this is a potential catastrophic disaster for people in this country and people around the world in the making. And we need to not repeat the errors of the past is what I would say. So we will see how this all works out if it does work out. Okay, let's go to the next one here. Uh, This one, old Noam Chomsky. And uh, just the Jeffrey Epstein story, it never really does die, does it? So let's go ahead and put this one up on the screen. This is... it's you know it's hard to say for somebody who is certainly uh, respected the book that we have literally on the shelf, which I've always thought was very important, foundational to understanding manufacturing consent and media incentives and all that by the intellectual Noam Chomsky linguist. Somebody you know I still do respect, I guess somewhat intellectually. You still but respect his scholarship. I can respect his scholarship. That said, uh, we now have proof from the Wall Street Journal that Jeffrey Epstein moved two hundred and seventy thousand dollars for Noam Chomsky and paid an additional $150,000 to an academic named Leon Botstein. So what the journal says is that this transfer between accounts for Noam Chomsky, the two academics have all been confirmed both by Chomsky as well as financial records that the uh, Wall Street Journal has been able to get their hands on, says that Chomsky met with Epstein, not just the one time that we had previously said, but actually on multiple occasions. Now, Chomsky says that they, quote, met occasionally to discuss political and academic topics. Um, And in response to those questions, um, actually what they say is that previously, one of the payoffs, this is to Botstein, was 150 grand because he had do- Epstein had donated a sum to Barr that year as more than a $1 million donation. A spokesperson then said that they did receive this like weird pass-through donation through Leon Botstein. Not exactly sure what's going on there. Uh, you know, with Chomsky, he doesn't really have a particularly good explanation. He says he received a March 8, 20, 2018 transfer of 200 $170,000 from an Epstein account. He says, quote, it was restricted to a rearrangement of my own funds and did not involve one penny from Epstein. He explained he had asked him for help, quote, with a technical matter that involved the disbursement of common funds related to his first marriage. 
He says, my wife died 15 years ago. We paid no attention to financial issues. We asked Epstein for advice. The simplest way would be to transfer funds from one account in my name to another by way of his office. Chomsky said he did not hire Epstein. It was just a quick and a simple transfer of funds. Look, I mean, maybe. Uh, you know, his initial response uh, to the question, Crystal, was, remember whenever they revealed yeah. that he'd met? First response is none of your business or anyone. Second is I knew him and we met occasionally. So. Is it possible that it's an innocent explanation? Maybe, but I mean, ever it boggles the mind to think of a true scenario where you need a quarter of a million dollar bridge loan from Jeffrey Epstein. Like there, we have a legitimate financial system and we have ways to rectify those problems. Why would it make sense for you to transfer money from one account to another guy's account who then transfers money to you? If you do need to transfer money to yourself, why don't you just wire money to yourself or AC, you know what I mean? Yeah, like there, I'm, I'm just mean. like, it's like, <laughs> there are many ways to give money to yourself. Very few of them involve me sending it to you to send it to me. And you know, we have a closer relationship, hopefully, than uh, Jeffrey Epstein and <laughs> Noam Chomsky. So anyway, I, I think it's a little bit odd. It, it yeah. just, it lines up with so many of these things that come out <sighs> where it's, you know, Epstein is, is doing financial transactions for people that you're like, why was right. this person in the middle of this? Why were they involved? He clearly made himself in the business of like solving whatever little issue, whatever little problem that people with power or money mm -hmm. had. Um, and so somehow I don't understand how or why it makes sense to put himself in the middle of this just transfer of funds between accounts. I mean, we do lots of fund transfers here at Breaking Points. Yes. Never yeah, once true. have we been like, let's get this weird pedophile to help us with the transaction. Yeah, like, let's just, send it to him and then send it back to us. We just t take it out I of don't our know. account. We send it to the person that we owe money to. Right, Usually, there, yeah. you put it on a wire. Right. Like, it's not really <laughs> that hard. You can do it online these days. So that, yes. Yeah. And uh, at the same, same time, there's some additional news about some of the banks and their relationships with Epstein. So he was originally a J.P. Morgan Chase customer for many years, and they're in trouble over that, and right. they're facing discovery over their relationship. Jamie Dimon's been subpoenaed and all these sorts of things. Mm -hmm. So that happened. Then after J.P. Morgan Chase was like, all right, I think we better be done with this dude, then Deutsche Bank picks up where they left off, and they had this relationship with Epstein for years after he was already convicted. Um, so there's really no excuse, and they've been in a lot of hot water for ignoring what were like really obviously suspicious transactions that were going on. So put this next piece up on the screen. We now have Deutsche Bank paying $75 million to victims of Jeffrey Epstein. This is a proposed court settlement. Closes, they say, another chapter in the German bank's relationship with the disgraced financier, which began in 2013 and continued up until late 2018. So this was to settle a, a potential class action lawsuit charging that this financial institution facilitated his sex trafficking ring, according to lawyers who sued the bank on behalf of alleged victims. Um, you had a woman who was listed anonymously as Jane Doe in court papers who filed this suit last year in New York, and this was on behalf of herself and other accusers of Epstein. Um, so, you know, they want to make this go away, and I would say for a gigantic financial, global financial institution like Deutsche Bank, $75 million to them, it's nothing. Yeah, you're right. And Deutsche Bank has long had problems and uh, links to 
Jeffrey Epstein. They were one of the originals that were cited by the New York Financial Department for some of the uh, activities that they had taken on behalf of them. And what was revealed actually in the Deutsche Bank complaint and the complaint by them, by from the New York Financial Services Department, is basically that they knew that he was involved in sketchy transactions. They knew he was a sex offender. They never kicked him off of their client list. Despite the fact that they knew all of what was going on, they continued to pursue him for business transactions. And really some of the most troubling was that they were facilitating transactions which would be illegal in any, or not, or which would be flagged to federal authorities by any other client. So for example, Crystal, if you or I were to go to our bank and we were to ask this question, how much money can we withdraw without alerting the feds? They're supposed to alert the feds. He asked that question, and then after they told him the answer, he would take out basically up until $1 in cash for all of that. His assistants would say that it was for tips. They also were wiring all kinds of crazy amounts of money to Eastern Europe for potential sex trafficking, um, you know, potential like sex trafficking purposes. It, there was some financial behavior where no normal person would ever, 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 ever get away That's with. Right. And that they knew was sketchy because they were flagging it internally and continued to do business with them. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Yeah. And so, you know, they didn't want any sort of discovery with regard to yes, this. They exactly. didn't want any of their dirty laundry to be aired publicly. And so, like I said, I think $75 million is them getting off really easy here. Oh, it's easy as hell because, I mean, who even knows? They might have made more than that just in the fees that they had from banking with him. I mean, they certainly paid a fine there. But even reputationally, as you said, like to expose the level of safeguards that they didn't have in place while this was happening, which these banks all supposedly do have. Again, you know, for you and me, for somebody who, uh, as a, let's say somebody had, fell on hard times and declared bankruptcy or something, it's like, well, then the bank has all these regulations about how they can and can't do business. Right. But if you are literally convicted sex offender and you have a proven track record of moving money around for trafficking purposes, apparently that's all good as long as you bring in enough money. I mean, that's all it takes to be a client for one it's, of these people. It's so dirty. Yeah. It really is so dirty. I mean, this is this unrelated to Epstein, yeah. but Wells Fargo, which has been another yeah, there like, you go. really bad actor. And they claim they had that whole fake account scandal. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you guys remember that, but it was just great. They were op opening up accounts in people's names that they never asked for. Right. They were creating fake accounts just routinely as part of their culture. And um, they just had uh, an issue where their shareholders are accusing them of lying about that they had things under control. Mm -hmm and that they had cleaned up their act, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, these are so many of these institutions, if not all of them are just so incredibly dirty. Yeah, dirty as hell. Um, all right, as we said, we had some uh, big and very disturbing news about mm -hmm. the housing market, how Americans are feeling about the housing market right now. Let's put this up on the screen from Gallup. You now have views of the US housing market reaching new depths. Um, a new low in the U.S. Say it is a good time to buy a house. Leave this up on the screen for a, a little bit just so you, people can take in the trend here. You know, back in 1980, you had about 50% of people who said a little bit more than 50%, a majority saying, okay, it's a good time to buy a house. That continues to go up until right about the time that you have the financial crash. It dips down to about 50%. Then after the financial crash around 2010, things pick back up. And now you've been on a basically consistent decline over the past decade, reaching a new low now where only 21% of Americans feel like it's a decent time to go out and buy a house. 78% say it is a bad time to buy a house. Now, it will be no surprise to viewers of this program 
why that is. You have the Federal Reserve hiking interest rates that has had a dramatic impact on mortgage interest rates that has made already unaffordable housing even more wildly unaffordable. Now, as home prices have just started to fall around the country, you've got a median of $436,000 is the median home price in 2023. Um, and you do have fewer Americans expecting home values in their area to rise in the coming year. So it's not that prices are like continuing to skyrocket, but because of mortgage rates, it's so wildly unaffordable. And of course, housing prices have been going up and up and up and up. Even before we started this whole conversation about inflation, inflation within housing, healthcare, and education has been out of control for years. So this basic building block of middle-class stability has become out of reach for most people who are, you know, even college-educated professionals who are earning decent salaries, if they live in a major metro area, they're screwed. If they don't have a cash handout from mommy and daddy to put down, you know, major cash up front, they're screwed, and they've only become more screwed from the mortgage interest rates. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that the mortgage interest uh, is the biggest problem in terms of affordability because, you know, what people do is they're saving up, they look at their down payment and they think, okay, great, I can make this happen. And then they go and they play with one of those tools and they're like, wait, so two years ago, definitely I could have made that happen. But now I can't because the interest payments are sky high. And then even if you can afford the interest, you're like, do I really want to be paying more than half my pay? Or do I really wanna be paying so many thousands of dollars per year to the bank? And sure, you know, it's tax deductible, and all of that, but you know, why would you spend a, you know, why throw away a dollar so that you can save 25 cents or whatever, whenever it comes to uh, your taxes? And that's always one of the like stupidest ways that people can think about it. The other one, as I pointed to here, is that when you have a decrease in the housing market and in views of the housing market, yeah, it restricts the further supply of housing because home builders and new homes of which we are desperately in need of. Yes. We really do need a lot of new housing. And I, you know, that is a whole other conversation about how you balance neighborhoods and all that other stuff, which I'm sympathetic to, you know, to some respect. But the question is, is like, at the very least, the ones that are getting built need to continue. Many home builders are simply dropping their projects or putting them on pause because they, A, cannot afford the building materials, and B, they do not feel that they will be able to sell at their current rate. Or, and we have this right here, let's put this up there on the screen, the housing market is now so unaffordable, builders say, quote, they have no choice but to build smaller homes. Now, again, that's not necessarily a bad thing because in some cases we kind of do need some more starter home inventory. Absolutely, because some yeah. people, you know, not everybody has to buy a 4,000 square foot house. I'm not really sure where this came from, but let's put that aside. Mm -hmm. uh, the idea, though, is that by building smaller, one of the things that they're finding is that it's going to just deeply cut into their profit margin, which would only mean that they will continue to build less and less or they may just uh, not, they may abandon the project altogether. So there's just like all within the chain of custody, I guess, of all this is just, it's just a really bad outlook. We'll have less housing and then we'll only have even more expensive payments. Yeah. yeah. And one of the problems too is people who already own a home who might have been interested in moving, mm -hmm. which would open up their house to be sold and you know some new buyer to be able to right. come in, they don't wanna move because they have really low mortgage interest rate. They don't wanna to have to take out a new mortgage that's gonna have a much higher interest rate. It makes no sense because they're not gonna be able to afford even the house that they already have given the way that mortgage interest rates have gone up. Now they have come down a little bit from their peak but is still significantly higher than where it was before. And as you're referring to, Sagar, in terms of the 
builders. It's kind of a worst of all wor worlds for them because on the one hand, inflation has made materials very expensive yes. for them in terms of um, building. On the other hand, even though the Fed has been hiking rates, you know, it hasn't combated that inflation in terms of their materials and their expenses, but it has jacked up also their borrowing costs. So that's an issue for them as well. One of the things that, frankly, we warned about very early um, in the Federal Reserve program of hiking interest rates because it has constrained supply of housing and it has made the housing situation even that much more um, difficult. So you have low housing stock, you don't have enough homes, you certainly don't have enough affordable homes. You have decades of prices going up and up and up, making housing unaffordable to start with. Then you layer on top of that the mortgage interest that is just absolutely killing people. And that's how you come to this place where so few Americans feel that it is a decent time to buy a house. Record low, feeling like it's a decent time to buy a house. And, you know, we talk a lot about the housing market here. And the reason we do is because it is so central to building basic wealth and prosperity. I mean, that is the real divide increasingly in America is between asset owners, in particular home homeowners, and people who do not own assets and do not right. own wealth. And as Sagar, you covered in your monologue the other mm -hmm. day, those problems are only going to get worse as boomers hand down their inheritances to their, you you know, lucky children, there's going to be a growing divide between those who can ever dream of getting onto the, you know, home ownership ladder versus those who are going to be, listen, if you love renting and that's your thing, I'm not like, there's no judgment here whatsoever. But a lot of people want to have a home, have that stability, be able to build wealth through it. And it is increasingly impossible for people to be able to do that. Last piece with regard to housing, um, you know, we just to show you how much the mortgage rates here matter, put this up on the screen from Politico. They had a piece um, a little while ago that said how the Fed's rate hikes helped drive up mortgage payments. You can see the average monthly mortgage payment for a typical U.S. home has grown 50 percent since January 31, 2022. So basically in a year, the average monthly mortgage payment has gone up by 50 percent. Just let, I mean, let that soak in. And so that's why people who have already have a home and have a lower mortgage interest rate, they're definitely not interested in selling if they can all, at all avoid it. They want to stay put until things come back down. If you're trying to, to get in to the market, this has made it so that what you're able to obtain is going to be so much less than what it was before. And in some cases, in many cases, it's just going to be completely off the table altogether. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that's why that graphic is just so poignant about the 50% increase over two years. And the really sad part is you probably just won't ever go back. I saw uh, a graphic going around that if you were able to get a less than 2% or 2.5% interest rate on your mortgage, it may be the single best trade that you will ever make in your entire life. Wow. Uh, just through you know, uh, fortuitous circumstances. For those who did it, God bless you. Although I guess you can't really leave. Uh, but uh, for those <laughs> who did it- you like your though, house, you'll be there forever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I hope you like it because you're not leaving. Um, but, you know, for those who didn't get, who did miss out on that, just as a matter of circumstance, it's still not fair. So we got to fix it somehow. Yeah, but I'm, I'm kind of kicking myself change. because I started the process of refinancing my mortgage uh, well, at the time when- it was like at its lowest. Yes. And then I like dropped the ball and didn't get my shit together. And then the rates started going up. I have a friend who's got a one point. Good job, Crystal. 
Yeah. 1.9. Wow. Like, wow, man. Yeah, I was like, you you, uh, you lucked out. So good for him. Yes, indeed. Right. Um, there's another piece uh, that, you know, it tracks with the dire views of the housing market. It tracks with, you know, people's just sense of hopelessness. It tracks with the fallout from the pandemic. Go ahead and put this up on the screen. I mean, this is in some ways one of the worst metrics mm -hmm. of how the country is doing that I've seen in a long time. U.S. depression rates um, have reached a new high. So people who have been diagnosed with depression, who have ever had depression, who are currently being treated for depression, both of those metrics have reached an all-time high. Um, so 29%, that's a nearly 10 percentage point hike since 2015. So we're not talking about a long time ago, but we've had a 10 point hike in the percentage of Americans who currently have or are being treated for depression. That's at 17.8%. That's up about seven points over that period, highest recorded by Gallup since they started measuring depression. Um, you have higher rates among women. So uh, over one third of women, 36.7% now report having been diagnosed at some point in their lifetime. That's compared to 20.4% of men. Um, their rate has also risen at nearly twice the rate of men since 2017. You've got uh, young people who also have seen significant increases. So those aged 18 to 29, they're at 34%. Those who are aged 30 to 44, they're at 35%. And their depression diagnosis rates have been among the, the ones that have spiked the most. Um, now, and some of this is you know, the, for example, the difference between men and women, I wonder how much of that is there's actually different, differing rates of depression between men and women and how much of it is women feel more comfortable admitting this and seeking help. And because you have the image of like, you know, masculinity and the strong, silent type or whatever, if there's more of a stigma there around seeking help and admitting you've been diagnosed or admitting you've struggled with depression, I genuinely don't know. I'm just putting that out there for people to consider. Um, but the other thing they point to here is not going to be surprised, which is that, um, you know, COVID-19 and social isolation and lockdowns and the fact that people were just at their home alone or with just their close nuclear family, that has really exacerbated what was already a crisis in terms of depression. It's also contributed to significant substance abuse. Um, so, and, and, you know, mental health in this country, mental health care in this country is really poorly lacking. So that contributes to this picture as well. Yeah. So I actually think I'm most concerned about the percent change because mm -hmm. the percent change has gone up by 8.4% in the last eight years. For men, it's gone up by 5.7. For women, it's gone up by 10.5. For those who are 18 to 29, it's gone up by 13.9. For 30 to 34, 12.6. 45 to 64, 5.7. 65 on older, uh, it's only gone up by 2%. So the net increase specifically among people between 18 to 29 and 30 to 44 just comes from a general sense of malaise and also your inability to think that you can get out of your current circumstances. And I think that is probably the toughest single thing. And it also explains a lot of our social ills. It's why people are angry so much. A lot of violence right now is just people are pissed. They're like, uh, they're popping off for literally no reason. Ask anybody who works in law enforcement. Also, the amount of rage, uh, road rage incidents is sky high. Mm. I actually wow. witnessed two or three today. Wow. Where, you know, you, you, you just want to, you'll be like, I want to be in the brain of somebody who thinks it's okay. to. I do not want to be in that brain. Huh? No, I'm That's just like, going to be like a horrible place to live. Explain it to me. Explain to me why you're more important than 500 other people who are in line. 
What, what's happening inside of you? It's like, how were you raised to get to this point? And then also, you know, what happened on this particular day? Everybody has bad days. It's okay. Uh, but we're having a lot more bad days on average than good days. And then that's the question of like, why? How does this all happen? And I think, you know, it's COVID lockdowns, it just accelerated it. Like, it's not yeah. the answer. I was also looking at, you know, not only the teen depression rate, it's, also, it's been on the rise now for quite a long time. And I think I have to go back to the phone analysis. A lot of it has, you see a huge spike in uh, depression between 18 to 44 year olds that happened right around 2011. And the reason why 2011 or 2012 is a pretty good benchmark is because that is when mass availability of smartphones, not just when the iPhone came out, but whenever yeah. the mass iPhone 4 really was a jump off point yeah. for a lot of people. Uh, the move from the Blackberry to the smartphone and also the rise of Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram and all, all of these other apps kind of right hits that on. Now, you know, can you live without them? No, wouldn't you? Literally, I wouldn't be here without them. So, you know, it's, it's complicated, but it's very complicated. It's complicated. That said, I mean, we got to find some sort of balance. And I, you know, you hear it and we see it a lot from people. People feel very uh, not optimistic about starting a family, about even getting in a relationship. Everything has kind of been gamified, smartphone fied. Uh, and I, again, you know, you can't go back from where we are right now, but I think acknowledging it at the very least is important. Yeah. Also, I, you know, it should open up a lot of discussion, Crystal, about SSRIs. We covered all those stories mm -hmm. about whether SSRIs even work, you know, relative to all of the downsides, how exercise itself has, seems to have the exact same uh, level of upside without any of the risk. I'm totally open now, having watched Michael Pollan's documentary and book about the use of potential, you know, psychedelics um, in a clinical setting. But more importantly, it's like we have to, we pursue all options with a vigorous I think and right. uh, yeah, with a vigorous attitude. I do want to point out too that um, you know some of the trends that we track here are really unique to the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, this one is actually not. Um, this is actually pretty consistent with global rates of depression and anxiety, which I think also would fit with the idea that you know the smartphone has been a major contributor because right. obviously that's not a U.S. specific phenomenon. So um, it's it's very multifaceted. I also agree with you that COVID was an accelerant of trends that were already existing. And, um, you know, I, I think this is a major crisis just in terms of oftentimes the only way that um, the U.S., the U.S. government, uh, media pundits know how to track well-being in the U.S. is like by money or the unemployment rate right. or, you know, or the stock market, um, which is a particularly poor indicator of how the country is doing. But to me, uh, core issues like, you know, whether people feel like they'll ever be able to buy a house, how they're feeling about themselves day to day, how much of a struggle it is for them to get through their day, you know, the levels of de depression, anxiety, self-reported loneliness. Loneliness can be really devastating and is mm -hmm. under discussed as well. Um, these are the sort of core metrics that I think really make up a health healthy society, and unfortunately, we're failing on a lot of them. Yeah, uh, you know, it's one of those where, at the very least, people need to take it seriously. Yes. Uh, and that's the most important thing. Great. Speaking of mental illness and uh, things that are, you know, uh, really out of whack and, and causing people to have- You've been out in that turn for a while. People who've been maybe, you know, displaying narcissistic behavior now for years. Uh, there was a fascinating incident that happened uh, yesterday. Um, so, uh, we began the day. There was a statement that was put out by the Duke and Duchess, uh, the Duke and Duchess, Harry and Meghan, uh, that we may call them here in the United States. Uh, let's put this up there on the screen. They put out a statement. They say, Last night, 
the Duke and Duchess of Sussex and uh, Mrs. Ragland, that's the mother-in-law, were involved in a near catastrophic car chase at the hands of a ring of highly aggressive paparazzi. This relentless pursuit, lasting over two hours, resulted in multiple near collisions involving other drivers on the road, pedestrians and two NYPD officers. While being a public figure comes with a level of interest from the public, it should never come at the cost of anyone's safety. Disseminations of these images, given the way in which they were obtained, encourages a highly intrusive practice that is dangerous to all involved. Hmm. Okay, so we have a couple of questions here immediately about this. Uh, obviously, you know, we, can, we should have some empathy for Prince Harry. His mother literally died in an incident where, well, maybe, uh, racing away from paparazzi. paparazzi. Okay, so at least that's the official narrative. Maybe that's what he believes. So if so, maybe he's gonna be sensitive about that. All right, so let's break some of it down. So first and foremost, what are we all asking about? Two hours? Yeah, two hour near catastrophic car chase. Uh, in the middle of down, midtown Manhattan. That's pretty interesting for anybody who's ever lived there, who's ever spent any time there. Just Crystal. so you guys know, midtown is like Times Square. Yeah, Times Square. Uh, so we're t this place has bumper to bumper traffic like 24 seven, um, especially at the time that they were leaving. So that's kind of crazy. How do you have a near catastrophic car chase? Then they say that it had near collisions with other drivers on the road, pedestrians and two NYPD officers. So. Uh, immediately, of course, we're like, okay, well, you know, maybe this happened. Uh, uh, let's talk to the NYPD. So here's what they had to say. Let's put this up there on the screen. Here's what they say. Uh, on Wednesday evening, May 16, the NYPD assisted the private security team protecting the Duke and Duchess of Sussex. They were numerous photographers that made their transport challenging. The Duke and Duchess arrived at their destination and there were no reported collisions, summonses, injuries, arrests in regard. Oh, so no Collisions, no summonses, no injuries, no arrests in regard. No officers uh, were put at risk as were originally claimed. So already we have some questions here about the two hour thing. Now the NYPD basically says uh, that's that's actually not what happened at all. Then uh, Mayor Eric Adams, who presumably also had uh, been read in a little bit uh, on the incident, he poured cold water on the entire thing. Let's take a listen to what he said. Uh, I would find it hard to believe that there was a two hour high speed chase. That would be, I find it hard to believe, but we will find out the exact duration of it. But if it's a 10 minutes, a 10 minute chase is extremely dangerous in New York City. 10 minute chase is extremely dangerous, you're right. And uh, unfortunately though, for them and their version of events, it doesn't even look like even that 10 minute chase happened. Uh, let's put this up there on the screen uh, because the taxi driver that they got into a taxi, he says, I don't think I would call it a chase. He says, I never felt like I was in danger. They were quiet, they seemed scared, but it's New York, it's safe. By the way, whenever he says that, uh, what he is actually saying is it's Midtown Manhattan uh, that it's safe. And look, I think that that is very obviously true. Now, furthermore, there's actually been even more reporting since we put these uh, together, Crystal. And in fact, according to police sources who are countering this claim, not only was there no car chase, all of that, but they say that this entire episode lasted only 20 minutes and did not involve the amount of paparazzi that they claim. In fact, the cops who escorted Harry and Meghan out of the event and to their home or wherever they were staying, they say they were home 20 minutes after leaving the event. This entire thing 
appears to be based on the uh, a full availability of the evidence as it currently exists does not appear to have happened in the way that they said, Crystal. And uh, we can say that from the taxi driver who's on record, from the NYPD, from the mayor, from the police sources that have all put this out. From and the it's lack just, of video. The lack of video. I mean, this is Midtown Manhattan. There's the, people with cell phone cameras everywhere. The video Nobody actually saw did anything? come out um, from people who showed the paparazzi around the car at a red light, by the way. They okay. Doing anything wrong. Then a cop car was coming, except the cop car wasn't escorting them. He just came through and he turned right. He didn't go in the same direction. So even their version of events on that one is total BS. So look, I mean, looking at all of this, it is very clear uh, that this did not happen, that the way that they said it did, based upon their recollections and all the stuff that is in the public domain at this moment. And it's just a further part of the We Want Privacy Tour. Yes, yeah. I, I don't know how many of you watched the South Park episode about yeah. Harry and Meghan that they were suing yeah. them over, right? Right, right. Um, The whole- Well, they they considered it, they considered it. Oh, they did not- Here's the thing, the they're in America. Sorry, Harry and Meghan, you're not in your BS country where you can just sue people for no reason and may and possibly win. <laughs> in America, we have much better laws. Yeah. So in the South Park yeah. episode, the whole central core of the plot yeah. is that Harry and Meghan are going on, people who look like Harry and yeah, Meghan and right. bear some resemblance <laughs> to them, are going on a worldwide privacy tour where they go and they they decide they're going to move to South Park to like get their privacy mm -hmm. and they're out like picketing, like we just want to be left alone. And everyone's like, we're trying to leave you alone. Right. Like, please leave us alone. That's right. And this is almost literally, like it is literally the South Park episode. Right. Like, you, okay, there were some paparazzi. I don't think anyone is going to be shocked by that. Paparazzi can be aggressive. I don't think anybody, including yourselves, are going to be shocked by that either. But by wildly overstating this, it's like, yeah, we are trying to leave you alone, but you just keep putting yourself at our faces. Do I want to cover Harry and Meghan? No, not no. really. But like, this is just too absurd to not talk well, about. And the direct contradiction from the police, from the mayor, from like everybody who had anything to, the taxi driver, mm -hmm. for anybody who had anything to do with it, it's The reason hilarious. I feel compelled uh, to debunk this and to talk about this is because I know that this will just be regurgitated by the page sixes and all of these other people. In fact, the funniest thing is in, in Britain, they think that Harry and Meghan are a joke and they are reviled. The only people who believe her in anything that she says are idiots in America who are like, oh my God, it's a real life princess. And that's the issue is like, we are the suckers. Our media are the ones. How much of that sentiment still exists at this point? I, I'm I genuinely know. asking because I, I have this, my sense is that everybody is like, please go away. And that's because so you're around normal you. people. There, there are a <laughs> lot of girls out there who love Harry, Meghan. They think that she told the truth in her Oprah interview, even though there's not a lot of evidence to say that she told the truth in her Oprah interview. Uh, I mean, and look, you can hate the royal family if you want to, that's fine. But like, that doesn't mean you have to believe a complete narcissist. And like, that's, it's very clear um, what her game has been to normal folks like us, but you know, not everybody uh, feels that way. And the point is, is that, you know, looking at the way that her claims were reported, immediately it was as truth. They were like, oh my gosh, this is terrible, catastrophic, all that. Not one ounce of skepticism, except again, from the Brits and, you know, Megyn Kelly, people like me and, and a few others who were like, yeah, I don't think so, man. This, this, this whole thing up. doesn't really uh, Listen, add up. I don't want to besmirch page six, six which I think does some phenomenal reporting. <laughs> right, you're right, I'm sorry. I should not go after. <laughs> Uh, they're only doing what they're told, I guess, which is, you know, technically their entire job. But Yeah, it is, I mean, they uh, trade and gossip. That's what they do. Yes. But you would think that there would be a moment of, like, two-hour car chase in Midtown Manhattan? Yeah, exactly. No, that's my thing. Is like, How do you say with a straight face that you had a car chase 
in midtown Manhattan for two hours. Most of that time, you'd be sitting in traffic. And all of the evidence that came out from it is people sitting in traffic. So there you go. All right. Let's talk about Fox News, and uh, let's put this up there on the screen. This is big news uh, being reported by Matt Drudge over at the Drudge Report. Uh, Fox News is currently denying it, but Drudge Report says that Sean Hannity appears to be ready to replace Tucker Carlson in a major shakeup. Now, here's what he says from Drudge. He says, world-exclusive Fox News sets a new schedule. So Drudge is claiming that the new primetime gigs will both go to Sean Hannity, to Jesse Waters, and to Greg Gutfeld to stack the primetime lineup. 7 p.m. currently is where they might move him to because Gutfeld is currently on at 11 p.m. and also on the 5 p.m. show called The Five. The reason why that this is a big deal is not only would they say that Hannity, their current higher rated host, is just going to slot in and take over Tucker, Tucker Carlson's time slot. It's that it would also involve a drop of Laura Ingram. Now, Again, as I said, let's put this up there. Fox is denying that any of this is the case. They say no decision has been made on a new primetime lineup, and there are multiple scenarios under consideration. Not really a full-scale denial, because mm. all Drudge is saying is a major shakeup is happening, and the main thing that he is reporting is that Sean Hannity is going to the 8 p.m. hour. It's certainly possible that it doesn't happen. It, you know, it's, I guess it's possible it doesn't. Drudge, though, generally pretty good whenever it comes to... Um, internal news, I guess you could say, of the Fox News channel because he was very tight and has a lot of sources there. He actually used to work there, you know, now at some point. The real question is, uh, you know, will Laura Ingram get the boot? And then second, this only only codifies so much of what I've talked about here is they're, if they're not even going to try and replace Tucker, they're just going to slot in Sean Hannity yeah. and move him there. That's an admission of failure. It's, it's a huge admission. It's such. It's very consistent yeah. with um, MSNBC's approach to not even trying to replace Rachel Maddow. Exactly. Really putting right. in Alex Wagner, who's just like a you know sort of standard mm. issue news host. Um, it's consistent with CNN just moving Caitlin Collins to prime time. Right. I mean, does anyone really expect she's? I, I, maybe they're deluding themselves and thinking she's going to be some gigantic star. But yeah. you know, to me, she's just another sort of like standard issue news host, like many of the other ones. So it it is consistent with a pattern of effectively managed decline mm -hmm. that is uh, quite evident at every one of these networks. We have a, a non-denial denial about the Laura Ingram thing yes. as well that we can report. So a network spokesperson said, this is kind of funny, Reports based on various tweets by left-wing activists are wildly inaccurate. Since when hmm. did Drudge become a yeah. left-wing activist? Okay. okay. Laura Ingram, the top-rated woman in cable news, is now and will continue to be a prominent host and integral part of the Fox News lineup. Doesn't say she's going to remain in prime time, though, does it? Yeah, no. So, it I mean, it is interesting what is being omitted and you can bet very intentionally so from these little statements that they're putting out. Yeah, I mean, that's actually the big takeaway for me is like, oh, wow. So clearly uh, something is going on over there. I mean, I just think, look, if you're going to slot in Hannity, that is the biggest admission of failure. Whenever O'Reilly left the network, Hannity stayed in his 9 p.m. Uh, slot and they tried out a bunch of different stuff. I forget exactly what the drama was because like Megyn Kelly was leaving. So they replaced her and then Tucker was moved 8 p.m. hour. Eventually, that's where he found his success. But they're only keeping existing talent. They're not even hiring anybody new. Tucker was actually brought in new to the network, at least to the primetime. Here, to they're primetime. Before that, he had been hosting, I think, Weekend Fox. I was going to say, Friends. he's only on yeah. Weekend Fox and Friends, just completely not the same thing at all. So, look, I mean, what you could say around uh, all of this is that, what you could say is that this is managed decline at its absolute finest. And 
I don't think anybody could say that Sean Hannity is in any way in the same caliber. I mean, he is just like, you can accuse Tucker of many things, but with Hannity, he is just like copy cut, like cookie cutter, yeah. whatever Republican yeah. talking point of the day is. Yeah. No dissent like, whatsoever. It's like a wind up doll, like freedom and low yeah. taxes. I, just, I mean, it's just it's very predictable. Yeah, it's That's what I would say. It's, he's, he's very predictable. He's always going to be on the side of like whatever is the Republican thing of the day. He's going to be on the talking points. Like it just is, you know, it is what it is. Right. So you're not going to break a lot of ground there. Obviously, he's had a lot of success at the network for a lot mm -hmm. of years. Oh, I think he's been there the whole, like the whole time since the launch of the network. I don't know if he was there at the very beginning. But he's there been there a early. long time. Uh, and, you know, he's held down a stable core of yes. audience. But as we've discussed before, there were only a few couple people in cable news who really were a magnet to draw viewers right. in. And then much of the cable news game is trying to hold on to whatever you get in terms of audience that carries over from the last host. So, you know, Rachel Maddow was a tentpole at MSNBC and um, Tucker was a tentpole over at Fox News. And, you know, they they clearly don't have anyone to, uh, to replace him with in terms of that sort of like tentpole draw. What do you make of the Laura, if we're taking this Laura rumor at face value, which frankly, the Fox News statement just to me almost like confirms mm -hmm. that she's being moved down in prime time. She was also caught up in some of the um, Dominion revelations. You know, I can't remember specifically that, but I, I know there were texts or messages between her producers and um, some people who were involved with Stop the Steal. You know, do you think that that could be related to why she's being moved down to prime time? It's possible. It's certainly possible that she's. That's one of the reasons that she got moved out of prime time. Uh, it's also, you know, her ratings not may, may not be the best. They also could. I mean, look, why, they may want to try and develop talent. Like they've given her several years there, and she hasn't made it into some gangbusters thing. You know, it's also hard to work with. I mean, 10 p.m. is not a great time to be on television. And you know, in general, she's hard to work with. Yeah, allegedly. I was going to say. I know behind yeah. the scenes, she's not beloved. That's, a, that's what the people say. Yeah. Okay. Allegedly, according to a rumor mill. Um, so you know, it could be. It's probably just a combination of factors. The real thing is if you move Gutfeld into primetime, you're taking effectively was one of your biggest stars, the network, and somebody who's found success in the 11 p.m. hour, and you're just going to bet on him to try and do that, to bring some comedy or something new, you know, for that. Waters, I mean, listen, Waters, I, I think he's very much in the same league, um, Hannity and all of that, but all of these people, this has just managed to decline, you know, at, at its very least. It definitely would be bad for Laura Ingram, though, if that's what happened. Yeah, I'm just looking at what her involvement was in the, like, what came out in the right. Dominion thing. Apparently, she and Tucker had been privately discussing Sidney Powell. Yes. Tucker called her a nut right. and said a bunch of other stuff. <laughs> and then, like, that very, the very next day, where Laura's agreeing that basically Sidney Powell is an unhinged right. lunatic, and then the very next day, she's um, saying she believed the election was rife with problems and potential fraud. Yes. So very different what she was saying behind the scenes, behind beside what she was presenting to her viewing audience so was that a factor I, you know yeah who knows yeah. who knows what's going only on time will tell right yeah or we may never know crystal what do you take a look at well mass surveillance is class warfare that is the major takeaway from a new washington post report about how facial recognition and surveillance cameras are being used to strip the rights and the dignity from poor residents of public housing projects so here is that report the headline is eyes on the poor cameras facial recognition watch over public housing and it tracks how public housing projects are increasingly using surveillance tech to track 
every little movement of residents, weaponizing the technology to evict residents over really minor infractions. According to the Post, this is happening in small rural communities and major metro areas alike. Just take a look at this graphic. It shows the number of cameras installed per resident in public housing projects from New York City to Rowlett, North Dakota. Some of these places have more cameras per person than the Louvre and, the, and many casinos, which are famous, of course, for sophisticated player surveillance. Now, there is no tracking of how many residents have been evicted based on these monitoring systems, but evidence suggests that the number is significant and rising. So first of all, overall evictions have skyrocketed in public housing post-pandemic. Princeton's eviction lab tracks a portion of these public housing projects. They found that evictions in the 10 states and 34 cities that they monitor have doubled since the end of the pandemic era moratoriums, rising to 5,576 in 2022. That was a faster rate of increase than evictions from other housing units across the country. What's more, Interviews with advocates suggest that these newly installed high-tech camera systems have been crucial in trying to push people out. The Post spoke with numerous residents who had been tracked, harassed, and kicked out for violating rules about guests or about smoking too close to the building or even for removing a cart from the laundry room. They interviewed one single mom, Tanya Akabu, in New Bedford, Massachusetts, who was trying to balance childcare with her day job. She's a bus driver, and she was also going to night school training to be a lab technician. From the sound of things, she was trying to do everything right, trying to educate herself so she could get a higher paying job to better support herself and her kiddos. But given the expense of childcare in this country, she had to rely on her ex-husband to help care for her kids while she was at work and while she was at school. The building accused him of actually living at the apartment, violating their rules, and they used their surveillance tech to make their case. The housing authority actually used software to place a digital marker next to Akabu's front door and told the system to retrieve every moment when motion was detected near the marker, documents and interviews show. I'm quoting from the post here. When her property manager suspected that Akabu's ex was leaving through the back door, she set up a portable camera in the backyard pointed directly at that door. It's according to housing authority officials and a review of the surveillance video obtained and verified by the post. It got to the point where it was like harassment, Akabu, 33, said. They really made my life hell. She says she presented evidence to the building that her ex was not in fact living there, that he had another different residence, but they didn't believe her and she still was evicted. Now, another 68-year-old woman was evicted when cameras caught her smoking too close to the building and allegedly getting into disputes with the other residents. After being forced out of public housing, she landed on her sister's couch, desperately searching for some other stable living situation. Just when she thought that she had caught a break with another building accepting her rental application, she's back to square one after they talked to the public housing management and decided they did not want her in their building after all. It shows you how a single eviction can really derail an entire life. So what is behind the rise of this level of surveillance? Now, in part, the installation is a reaction to entirely justified concerns about crime, violence, and theft. Residents and management alike, they want these complexes to be safe and calm, of course, not dens of drug use or gang infighting. A pandemic crime surge has hit poor neighborhoods such as these particularly hard, and public housing projects don't have the resources to do much of anything other than apply a clumsy surveillance band-aid to a gaping national social problem. The problem goes back further, too. In 1989, at the height of the crack epidemic, federal legislators passed $100 million in funding to provide a wide range of social services, drug rehab, and enhanced security to public housing. That funding was stripped under the Bush administration and replaced with a much smaller grant of just $10 million to install security features, things like cameras, doors, carbon monoxide detectors, and the like. 
So unfortunately, while it's pretty clear the cameras have been intrusive to residents and have turned their entire lives into a police state nightmare, there is no real evidence that they've been successful in combating crime that residents would want them to. In rural Scott County, Virginia, their algorithm-based surveillance system has only turned up a single match for an individual who was banned from the complex. And these banned lists, lists are in and of themselves actually controversial since people can end up on them without ever having been charged with or convicted of a crime. The person this system matched to had been accused of domestic violence, though charges were never filed. In this story, we kind of see the perfect storm of societal ills that we're grappling with all across the country. You've got a mistrust of and contempt for the poor that justifies dehumanizing treatment. You've got a post-pandemic crime spike that has disproportionately victimized the poor. You've got a response to that crime spike that lacks resources and will to deal with root causes and instead just further immiserates the poor. A tech search that is increasingly penetrating even the most intimate of spaces for everyone and looming over all of it, a housing affordability crisis that squeezes everyone except the wealthy and constantly threatens the working poor with outright homelessness. People don't need Big Brother watching them. They need health care, a living wage, child care, and perhaps above all, decent, affordable housing. All the cameras in the world are not going to fix what ails us. And that's the rub saga is a lot of these rest- And if you want to hear my reaction to Crystal's monologue, become a premium subscriber today at breakingpoints.com. All right, Sagar, what are you looking at? Well, it's time to check in with the cable ratings. Yes, I know it can seem gratuitous. My honest answer, maybe you're right. But sometimes I cannot help myself. And the more that we remind everyone just how pathetic and badly they are doing, the better one of the big predictions we made here, here after Tucker Carlson's departure from Fox News comes true, is that this time it really is different. Fox would have a very difficult time recovering their primetime lineup and has given the median age of their viewers, it is now mid 70s. They just don't have that much time to get it right. Already that prediction is bearing fruit. MSNBC, for the first time in years, is now consistently beating Fox in primetime across the board. And MSNBC averaged 1.8 million viewers between 8 to 11. Fox averaged 1.7 million. CNN averaged 485,000. Newsmax, 420,000. Now, of course, at least on their face, MSNBC and Fox numbers sound impressive. And CNN, though, is in another league of pathetic. But once again, consider the number of viewers that they have in their key demographic. Even here, MSNBC may beat Fox, but they're still only getting 188,000 viewers below the age of 54. Fox is only able to get 174,000. CNN, 117. Newsmax, 44. Terrestrial and old TV, cable TV, is truly the last home of the boomer. I recently was told by an insider, and I swear I am not making this up, is that one reason Fox News is not too worried about losing its overall audience is because their audience is so old they, quote, have difficulty physically handling the remote and changing the channel. <laughs> I swear, that's a true story directly told to me by someone with knowledge. That is a direct quote. But even with the last holdout of boomers over our mass culture. Here too, there are signs of big trouble. CNN has lost out to Newsmax in its overall number of viewers in primetime on Friday night, and they were only able to pull some 335,000 viewers on average throughout the 8 to 11 p.m. hour. 10 p.m., Chris Wallace was actually able to pull in only 263. This put Anderson Cooper's show also behind Eric Bowling over on Newsmax. Consider how crazy all of this is when you think about these people's salaries. Cooper is supposedly a household name, a literal Vanderbilt. Surely he should be able to get some people to watch his show. Yet, 
year after year to do so and still command some $12 million per year. Chris Wallace, same thing, supposedly a household name, famous dad, huge coup for CNN Plus after leaving Fox News. He's making millions at CNN to do the lowest rated show on cable TV and get beaten by Newsmax. None of it really makes any sense at all, and it's why I can't stop talking about it, because the absurdity of it all eventually has to catch up to reality. So many people inside the system are so captured by it, they will pretend to be surprised when it all crumbles down. At the same time, over in sports media though, something very interesting indeed is happening. Sports media is important to watch because many of the trends that end up happening in political media start over there. Pat McAfee, the sports juggernaut, in a shocking move is going to air his show on ESPN. But here's the deal. He's walking away from a $120 million deal with FanDuel for sponsorship of his current show. Instead, he will be now airing all three hours of his show on ESPN, ESPN Plus, but What's surprising here are not the dollars, it's the terms of his contract. All reporting indicates all McAfee had to really give up was the ability to say the F word during his show. His show will remain streaming live for free on YouTube. He will maintain editorial control. His deal is more like a licensing agreement than a full-blown acquisition. Think about what it means. Pat McAfee is so valuable now to ESPN and to Disney. They are willing to pay him upwards of $10 million a year, probably more, just to have his stuff on their program while you can continue to watch it for free on YouTube. No network deal in history has ever been more friendly to somebody on the internet. Now, the only caveat I'm going to give is if Pat thinks he's giving away, getting away just so easy as to stop saying the F word, probably has another thing mm. coming. Just out yesterday, for example, a news broke that ESPN had dropped a documentary about the Chinese-American tennis star Michael Chang, who won the 1989 French Open as a young man and was inspired by the Tiananmen Square Massacre. You can guess why they dropped it. I'm just sure it has editorial and nothing to do with Disney's parent company's relationship to the Chinese Communist Party. But the broader point that I'm making is that a network acquiring a streamer and letting him continue to stream, where he continued to own his IP, is crazy. That's how desperate that they are just to squeeze even a few more people watching their dwindling channels. Now, rest assured, that is not going to happen over here, nor do we want it to. It is only just a big sign of how things are going in the opposite direction from the arrogance and the confidence with which the mainstream media consider their role in our society. And it's very fitting. Since Tucker's departure, the only person who's been able to pull real numbers on MSNBC Rachel Maddow, she only works one day a week on MSNBC, yet she still continues to pedal her nonsense. Nonetheless, though, people love that nonsense. She's basically the very last of her breed capable of doing that. Tucker and Rachel, in my opinion, I've said before, probably the very last to play the game at this level. And even their numbers, paltry compared to the 10 years ago, as I've showed you all before. The total collapse of the cable news business now in the next decade is all but assured, but it also will not stop a Feinstein level of delusion from remaining on the air. Mm. The only question is about power and whether they wake up to how much the world is changing every year and every day. I thought the McAfee deal is actually the most important. And if you want to hear my reaction to Sagar's monologue, become a premium subscriber today at breakingpoints.com. Joining us now, old friend of mine, Shelby Talcott. She's a political reporter over at Semaphore. It's great to see you. Nice to be here. Okay, so Shelby, you've been all over the GOP primary, or I guess the not technical primary <laughs> yet, but officially probably primary uh, that's happening right now. We were just talking about news. Ron DeSantis very likely set to launch his campaign either next week or sometime within that. You wrote a new piece. Let's put it up there on the screen. The real 2024 campaign started in Iowa this weekend. DeSantis giving us a little bit of a preview of what he's going to be doing. Tell us a little bit about what you learned, what this primary is going to look like. Yeah, I think it's been obvious that 
DeSantis is running for a mm -hmm. long time. Mm -hmm. But this was the first weekend that I really noticed him kind of branch out of his Florida-focused rhetoric. And mm -hmm. so I'm, I'm sure you guys saw over the past few months when he was doing his book tour, it was very Florida-focused. This time he started branching out and he started giving kind of indirect jibes yes. over at at Trump, he did the you know handshaking and the flipping the burgers mm -hmm. for the for the press. Um, he didn't give a press. He didn't speak to the press, which was notable because um, Congressman Feinstein's people were really pushing his team to do so, oh, and they essentially, from my understanding, were telling his team, "Well, hey, this is this is how we do things every year, and right. this is you know you're you're about to launch your presidential campaign. This is oh. how things have to be." Um, but by and large, it was really the first indication I felt like that things are heating up. He's about to announce. Got it. So uh, how did he do in terms of the knock on him has been like, oh, he's not very personable. He's not very comfortable around people. He doesn't do like the glad hand handling uh, piece of politics very well. And there have been some indications of that. I mean, there was, you know, the, the one member of Congress that he met with and then directly afterwards endorsed Donald Trump. You had stories coming out about, hey, I sat next to this dude for years. We served on the same committee and he didn't even learn my name. Um, do you see any evidence of that on the nascent campaign trail thus far? Yeah, listen, I think, and I've talked to people close to him and they acknowledge that it is not his bread and butter. Um, he prefers to be at home with his family, which mm. I think is completely fine, but for a presidential campaign, you have to kind of branch out. So I'm seeing evidence that he is taking those criticisms and trying to apply them. Right. Um, but I'm also seeing evidence that it's not natural for him. Mm. You know, in Iowa, there was a clip of him as he was talking to prospective voters that went viral um, among the that. Trump team where he was like laughing really aggressively. Mm. And so, yeah, it, it's a little it's a little bit of awkwardness. The egregious mm. part to me was the guy who was like, I drove two hours to come see you. And he was like, thanks, and just turned around. <laughs> I was like, oh, dude. I that's, didn't even see that. Uh, it, was not, it was part of the same clip. But that, that one, I was like, that actually might be worse um, whenever you make people feel that way. Tell us about the actual infrastructure of the campaign. We've been covering it now for quite some time. Uh, one of the, you know, things that we saw was that Trump canceled this event in Des Moines and everyone was like, oh, you know, Trump, DeSantis is going to go in on Iowa. He's going to try and make the early states part of his strategy. How would you assess the strength of their relative campaigns, I guess, you know, at the starting line right now? Well, I think it's early on. He certainly had a really tough month last month mm. and the Trump team was really on point. And, you know, when he came out to Washington, D.C., they announced a whole slew of Florida yes. endorsements right in his backyard. Um, and I think it was a little bit difficult for him because he's been of the mindset, DeSantis has been of the mindset that we're going to keep everything really locked down right. until we officially announce. I don't know if that's a misstep by his team given you have Trump so aggressively for so long kind of taking a beating on him. But as for Iowa, I actually think um, his team showed a lot of political savviness mm -hmm. in, you know, after they stayed on the ground, first of all, in in yeah. Iowa when there was a tornado watch, which I was in the state and it was a little bit rainy, but... It was fine. It, it, was, yeah. it was fine. Okay. I, you know. um, and then... You know, they after the second event, they went and they posted up right in the backyard of where the Trump rally was supposed to be. And mm -hmm. I thought that was that was really smart. Um, and they were outside, you know, indicating, you know, what a beautiful okay. night. Right. Uh, so, yeah, there is political savvy there. Um, a lot of his team, his official campaign team is going to be comprised of people who have been around him for a long time. Now, 
how that ends up expanding, I don't know. I know that DeSantis has been historically very focused on, you know, he's very insular. It's him, it's his wife, and those are the two main people. And he's going to have to expand that a lot um, and figure out kind of new hires that he can trust. Mm -hmm. And I think that's going to be a really big test for him because he's yes. never had to do that before. Yeah, I, I agree. What uh, is their theory of case of the case about how to or whether even to go directly at Trump? Because this is one of the things we've been talking about here. There's there's really double standard. I mean, Trump has been saying all kinds of crazy stuff about DeSantis. He like basically said he's a groomer. I mean, just like just unleashing a slew of attacks against Ron DeSantis. DeSantis will make this little like sort of side jab, like I don't know anything about payments to porn stars, and people will freak out about it. Mm -hmm. So it's a very different standard he's held to. It may not be fair, but that's reality. Donald Trump gets away with a lot more than other politicians do and basically every sphere of his life and his political campaigns. But at the same time, DeSantis, I think, is going to have to make some sort of cogent argument against Trump that would land with the Republican base in order to supplant him as, you know, the Republican nominee. So how are they thinking about how to navigate that challenge? Yeah, so the big thing, and you noted it, it's not just DeSantis who's kind of sidestepping these attacks against Trump. It's virtually the entire oh, that's 2024 right. field. That's right. And Nikki Haley's not kicking yes. sideways. She's not kicking sideways. <laughs> but there's like a legitimate, I think there's a legitimate reason whether or not it should be a legitimate reason. It is. When you go on the ground and talk to these voters, even the ones who don't want Trump to be president again also don't want to vote for someone who's directly right. attacking him. They still like they him. Like his, yeah. They like his record. They feel defensive because of the media. And so it's this like constant, what line do can we cross without alienating the voter base. Right. Um, but I think, you know, I think DeSantis is from, from people I've spoken to, his argument for the case against Trump is going to be, look at my Florida record, and he's going to try to get to the right on Trump on almost every issue. We've already seen it. So tell us about that then. So uh, you were on the ground with voters. The voters are the only people that actually matter, not any of our <laughs> opinions. So what do you hear from them about people who are for DeSantis? What are they saying? What do they look? Are they college educated? Are they normal Iowa voters? Like what, who are these people? What do they want from the man? And why do they like him over Trump? I think there's a mix. It's yeah. certainly, and you know, and uh, I read an NBC article mm -hmm. a, a few weeks ago that is 100% accurate that even with DeSantis's struggles the past month, he's still getting huge numbers of people to his events. Like really? they're having to um, the Feenstra event, I think was the most RSVPs that they'd ever had. Mm -hmm. The second event, the GOP County dinner, they had to like extend invites. Like, like he's he's people are very interested in him. Um, and I I think it's a mix of people, but they like him because they're by and large, they're tired of the drama. Yes. From the Trump administration, and that's what I'm hearing consistently is they're like, we like Trump, he did a great job, but we're just tired of the drama, we want someone younger. Like, Ron DeSantis in Florida has been like really tight with his messaging. There's no, you know, drama, there's no leaks, and, and they really like that. Mm. Um, yeah. So really the big thing, in my opinion, from talking to voters is just, they're tired of the drama. And <laughs> what about, what do you think of the attempt to get to Trump's right on certain issues? I mean, the two that come to mind are abortion and entitlements. Um, because on the one hand, those further right positions may certainly land with a significant portion of the Republican base. 
On the other hand, they kind of undercut his other argument that he would be more electable than Donald Trump. I mean, we all see the way that the abortion issue has been devastating for Republican candidates who have um, who have uh, taken extreme positions. Uh, we've certainly seen the way that, you know, uh, it's touching entitlements in any way is really off the table. And Ron DeSantis has talked about that certainly in the past, that he was open to cuts to Social Security and Medicare. So um, how are they looking at, at those challenges? How are voters seeing those? And we've also had reports that some donors were upset by comments especially on Ukraine and abortion. Yeah, I think um, in terms of how voters are looking at it, they still view him as more electable than Trump mm -hmm. because— Just because of the messiness. They view him as being less messy. Yes. Mm. Um, and so for them, and whether that's accurate or not, I've heard from the, you know, Democratic operatives who are texting me saying, oh, Ron DeSantis said this about abortion, like, we're going to use this in the future. Mm. Like, his yeah. com recent comment about— um, hitting Trump over the abortion thing. They said, right. you know, this is going to be a talking point for us. So it is going to be a struggle. Like, how far right can you go before you lose some of those independent voters or some of those people who are maybe a little bit more moderate, um, socially particularly? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the, you know, the real problem, I think, that he has. And it's kind of interesting. I mean, whenever you, okay, well, let's let's flip to the Trump side. You know, whenever you talk, not to the Trump campaign, the voters that you actually see on the ground that love Trump, why do they want to stick with him um, and not DeSantis? What do they say about DeSantis? I like the guy, but I love Trump. Like, what does it look like? The big message I hear is, I like DeSantis, but it's not his turn. Yes. Mm. Right. Yeah. But, but the Trump. thing with the Trump base, when yeah. I go to Trump events, it's different than any other yeah. candidate that I, that I. This is hard to explain to people. Can you explain that? Cause I've been to events like this as it's well. It's like yeah. you go to a DeSantis event and there's kind of like normal mm -hmm. voters who are looking into the field. They're not necessarily committed to any one candidate. They're just, you know, kind of, you know, they like being courted. It's Iowa, it's yes. New Hampshire. And then you go to these Trump events and these Trump valleys and these are like it's like fans. Yeah. It's mm. like a it's die like a concert. hard. Yes, yeah. exactly. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's very different talking to them versus talking to voters at some of these other events. Yes, yeah. Well, Interesting. I've, I've always tried to hammer that home <laughs> to people. It, it literally is like nothing else in politics and I haven't seen it in a long time. Shelby, thank you so much for joining us. We really yeah, appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for it. coming in. Thank really you. Grateful. Yeah, it was great talking to you. Thank you guys so much for watching. We appreciate it. Uh, thanks for all of your support, breakingpoints.com if you're able. Otherwise, we will see you all next week. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. 
If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.